You're listening to The Lively Show, episode 82. Welcome to The Lively Show. I'm your host, Jess Lively, and this blogcast is designed to uplift, inspire, and add a little extra intention to your everyday. Welcome to the show, guys. Thank you so much for listening. Today's episode is sponsored by Squarespace.com. Feel free to use the code LIVELY at squarespace.com slash lively to get a free 14-day trial and use the code LIVELY at checkout to get 10% off. At the end of the episode, I'll be speaking with Christy Knutson about her awesome company and beautiful website. And thank you guys for all of your outpouring of love and support in emails and messages about episode 81 that aired this Tuesday. In the episode, I shared two big announcements. One, that we have bought our first home in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and we'll be leaving our beloved Austin, Texas. And two, that I am writing my first book, and I explain more about what that topic will be. If you haven't heard that episode, feel free to go back and listen. It'll help explain our values and why we've chosen to move from Austin to Ann Arbor and what I've been struggling with over the last six years on and off, which is now becoming the message for this upcoming book. And now for today's episode, this one is kicking off our summer series, which is the theme book club month. Each week this month, we are going to be interviewing a different author and a different genre. And I'm so excited to kick it off today with Gretchen Rubin. Gretchen Rubin is a best-selling author and has a podcast that's extremely well-known called Happier with Gretchen Rubin. So I'm guessing most of you already are familiar with Gretchen already, but if you're not, here are some titles you may have heard of before that Gretchen has written. One, The Happiness Project. Two, Happier at Home. And three, her newest one, Better Than Before. I have to say, guys, I love Gretchen's books, but Better Than Before is by far my favorite. I am so excited to dive into this topic. Better Than Before is actually Gretchen's research into why some people have a better time handling and creating habits than others, and ultimately figured out that our personalities have different traits that allow us to keep our habits better in certain areas and in certain methods than others. So she's going to help demystify this so that we can understand our own habit-forming personalities and then learn to use the tools that work for us most effectively. Let's go to the show. Gretchen, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Oh, I'm so happy to be talking to you. I'm so excited to talk about your new book, Better Than Before. But first, let's talk about your background and how you got to where you are. Well, I started my career in law and I went to law school. I was clerking and I was actually clerking for Justice Sandra Day O'Connor when I realized that I actually wanted to be a writer. And um, I was very fortunate because I think sometimes people know they don't want to do something like they know like, oh, I don't want to be a lawyer. or I don't want to be whatever it is that I'm doing, but they don't know what they want. But I was fortunate because at that time I had started in my free time for fun working on this big kind of research project, which was just something that I was doing for myself. And at at a certain point, I began to think, you know, this is an awful lot like writing a book. And writing a book is something that people do as a job. You know, it doesn't have to be my hobby. Maybe this could be my job. So not only did I know what I didn't want to do, I really knew what I wanted to do. So that, I think, made it a lot easier to make a transition out of law and into writing. Were people surprised when you said you wanted to quit being a lawyer and go into writing? You know, I was really lucky because I'm really, really close to my family. 
and I was married at the time, and everybody around me was really supportive of me making a big change. Now, here I was, like, I had gone to Yale Law School. I was editor-in-chief of the Law Journal there. I was a Supreme Court clerkship. Like, I had everything a person would need. And looking back on it, it's kind of amazing to me that everybody was like, that's awesome. Start all over <laughs> from the beginning. Like, why not? I think if they had been really cautioning me against it or something, I think it would have made it a lot harder. So I was lucky that the people around me were really supportive of the idea of me taking a big risk and making a big shift. My husband also shifted out of law around the same time. So he was doing that as well. That was helpful. Like, I remember there was a day when I was like, hey, are we going to keep paying our bar fees? Because it's really expensive to be a member of the bar. And he's like, no way. Like, we're out of that. And we can always figure it out later if we want to go back. So he was very encouraging. My family was very encouraging. My father said something to me that somebody said, well, that doesn't sound very encouraging to me, but it was actually very encouraging because I was getting ready for my first book. And my father said, you know, darling, you might not hit it out of the park the first time, but you're on your way. And somebody said, well, that's not very encouraging. I was like, no, it was very encouraging because my father was saying, you don't have to be an overnight immediate huge success in order to feel like you've made the right choice. And in fact, I didn't hit it out of the park. The first time I had a great experience and I kept writing and that was great. But, you know, it wasn't like I could just say like, oh, this has been amazing. You know, it was a lot of hard work. But so I was really lucky that the people around me were encouraging of me taking a risk. And when you say that The Happiness Project was the first book that really made it big? Oh, yeah. No, I mean, a lot of people think that was my first book, but it was actually my fifth book. Really? What were the other four books about? So my first book, which was the book that I thought about when I was, I was out on a walk around the Capitol Dome, and I looked up at the big, beautiful white dome against the blue sky, and I thought, if I were going to write a book, what is the subject that I'm interested in that everybody else in the world is interested in? And I thought, well, power, money, fame, sex. And my first book is almost a satire. It's called Power, Money, Fame, Sex, A User's Guide. It's kind of like the preppy handbook for Power, Money, Fame, and Sex. Then I wrote a biography <laughs> of Winston Churchill and one of John F. Kennedy. And then I wrote a very odd book with an artist, a photographer named Dana Hoey, called Profane Waste, because I get obsessed with certain things. This happens to me all the time. And in law school, I got obsessed with the question of why people would destroy their own possessions, which is very contrary to traditional economic thinking. And yet it's something that happens all the time. And so I was obsessed with this for years and finally wrote this little book with her and got it out of my system. And then The Happiness Project, I started writing as I was finishing up the JFK biography. That's when I got the idea to write The Happiness Project. Yeah, and it's much more introspective and much more about yourself rather than these other topics that were external research projects, if you will. Well, I guess it was research in both. <laughs> well, yeah. And, you know, to me, my big subject is human nature. I know from the outside, they look really different. And people are like, this is a surprising thing. But to me, they feel very consistent and that they're explorations in different ways of human nature. Like Winston Churchill, he's this exaggerated figure. He's so gigantic that you can really see things in a very big way that are hard to see in ordinary life. They feel very different to the reader, perhaps, but from my perspective, they feel very much of a kind. That's so interesting because on the book table at Barnes & Noble, they all may fall in different categories. But what you're saying is the glue that holds them together is the human nature. And that's consistent. Yes, for me. What got you into this whole habit thing? What sparked better than before? Well, I've been reading and thinking and talking to people about happiness for years. And I began to notice that when people talked about a big happiness boost that they'd achieved, 
or a big happiness challenge that they were struggling with, they very often pointed to something that had to do with a habit. And it wasn't that they didn't know what would make them happier or healthier or more productive. Like they'd figured it out. It was that they weren't able to follow through with some kind of behavior. So someone would say to me, well, my problem is I'm just exhausted all the time. Well, that's really about the habit of getting enough sleep. And so I began to get more and more interested in the role that habits played. And then I went to lunch with a friend and she said something that got me completely obsessed with habits that made me determined to solve the riddle of habits, which was she said to me, I know I would be happier and feel better if I ran regularly, if I exercised regularly, but I can't. And the weird thing is when I was in high school, I was on the track team. I had no trouble going running then, but I can't go running now. Why? And I thought, well, why? It's the same person. It's the same behavior. At one time, it was effortless. Now she can't do it. What is going on? What is happening to her habits? What's going on with her or her environment or whatever that's making this situation shape up this way? So I was like, I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to crack the code of habits. And I'm sure the research that went into the book itself has got to be gargantuan. (laughs) You end up coming up with these four tendencies, which I'm going to ask you about. But first, I have a question of when you're doing this research, how did you figure out the tendencies? Well, it was very difficult. I mean, it almost killed me. It was really, really hard to figure them out. I was seeing these patterns of behavior, but I did had no idea how they would connect. If you read people talking about habits, there's sort of this unspoken assumption that we all have the same aptitude for forming habits and the same attitude toward habits. I mean, that's obviously not true. And I began to think like, well, why is it that it's not so hard for me to form habits? What is it about me that's different? And I love habits. And people would say to me like, well, why are you writing a book about something that is an idea that people hate? I'm like, I love the idea of habits, but you don't. That's interesting. So we have a different attitude toward habits. It took me forever to see how I could see the patterns that would explain these very large patterns. And then there were weird things where like people would say exactly the same thing to me in a way that made me think, well, something deep must be going on here because it's not just people idiosyncratically answering. They're coming from the same place. There's something about them that's the same. For instance, when I would say to somebody, how do you feel about New Year's resolutions? A large number of people would give me exactly the same answer. And they would say, if something's important to me, I would not wait for the new year to change my behavior. Because January 1st is an arbitrary date. I would never wait for that. And I was like, well, that's interesting. Their objection to the New Year's resolution is that it's an arbitrary date. I can't even remember how I put all the pieces together. It took months and months and months. But then when I realized on GretchenRubin.com, I have a graph which shows how these four tendencies are circles that are overlapping in a big circle and how there's sort of the symmetry to the pattern. And, you know, it's like nature is symmetrical. I was like, man, I didn't make this up. I discovered this. This is like a natural law. It was so ecstatic. I mean, my sense of intellectual satisfaction was just immense because this really was very, very hard to figure out. You're right. Nobody has talked about these things this way. Of course, there's a million ways of slicing and dicing personality. And I think they all have strengths. They're all shine a spotlight on something about us that's helpful to see. But I think this gets at something that's very powerful. It reminds me of the five love languages. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Love the five love languages. It's kind of a similar thing. You get to see yourself in this way that hasn't been shown before. But once you see it, things click for you. Why don't you explain what the four tendencies are? So my argument in the book is that there are 21 strategies that people can use to make or break their habits, which sounds like a lot, but it's good because it means you can pick and choose the ones that work for you. Because what I've concluded is that the most important thing if you're trying to change your habits is to think about yourself. 
so that if you know yourself, you can set up your habits in a way that's going to allow you to succeed. Because the same thing that works for you, Jess, isn't necessarily going to work for me, Gretchen. Maybe it will. Maybe it won't. What, how do we understand how we're different and alike from each other in a way that's going to allow us to set up the habits in the way that work for us? And so one thing that you can think about is your tendency. And this has to do with how you deal with an expectation. There are outer expectations like a work deadline, a request from a spouse, a traffic regulation. And there are inner expectations, which is like your own New Year's resolution, your own desire to write a novel in your free time, where no one's checking on you, no one cares. It's just something that you want for yourself. So the four tendencies are upholders, questioners, obligers, and rebels. Upholders readily respond to outer and inner expectations alike. So they will keep a work deadline or keep a New Year's resolution without much fuss. They want to know what's expected of them. They like meeting those expectations. But their expectations for themselves are just as important as other people's expectations for them. Next, questioners. Questioners question all expectations. They'll do something if they think it makes sense. So they hate anything arbitrary, like a New Year's resolution. They hate anything arbitrary, irrational, or unfair. They really want to know, why am I listening to you anyway? Why do I think that you know what you're talking about? So they make everything an inner expectation because they can meet it once they feel like they've endorsed it. Once they've bought in, they can do it, but they have to be convinced that it's the right thing to do. Now, obligers readily meet outer expectations, but they struggle to meet inner expectations. And this, it turns out, was my friend on the track team. When she had a coach and a team waiting for her, she had no trouble showing up to go running. But when it was just her own expectation that she'd go running herself, she had a lot of trouble following through. And then finally, rebels. Rebels resist all expectations, outer and inner alike. They want to do what they want to do when they want to do it in their own way. They want to act from choice and freedom and authenticity. And if you ask or tell them to do something, they're very likely to do the opposite. So those are the four tendencies. When it comes to rebels in the book, you don't go very deeply into the rebel. Is it kind of the idea that the rebel is probably less likely to pick up the book in the first place or want to even think about it? It's very interesting that you say that because by far the smallest tendency is rebel. And what was fascinating for me was real my tendency, the upholder tendency is also tiny. These are the two extremes and they're both very small, but rebel is the smallest. And generally rebels don't like the idea of habits. They hate being chained or trapped. Like if they put something on their schedule, they often won't do it. They want to be choosing at all times. And so I have some stuff in there about how rebels can form habit-like behaviors and the kind of things that tend to work for them. But I don't focus on it very much because, like you say, it's sort of part of the rebel makeup that they're not drawn to habits. But I've heard from so many rebels since the book came out saying, please, will you write more about how rebels can successfully work with their rebel tendencies and have habit-like behaviors? Because on the one hand, I want the benefits of some kind of habit. On the other hand, it's hard for me to do it with my rebel nature. And so I've been talking to a lot of rebels because there are rebels who have successfully done this, how they do it. There's some about it in the book, but yeah, there's a lot more to be said because it turns out they're more interested in forming habits than I anticipated. Yeah, they wouldn't seem to be the type of person that would purchase the book, but they're there and they're excited about it. So one of the things I found personally reading it is I immediately thought, I'm an upholder as well. You made a really interesting thought of uh, someone that's a questioner would speed past a red light in the middle of the night if no one's around. And I would be sitting there at the red light because that's what you do. But at the same time, I have obliger and questioner tendencies depending on the area in question. So depending on my values, I may question one thing, oblige another, and uphold several more. Is that common? First of all, on my site, GretchenRubin.com, there's a quiz for people who are like, what am I? A lot of times people can tell what they are just from the description, but there is a quiz. So you could take the quiz and see what the quiz said. But I would ask you this. 
the fact that you question, many people are like, why would I do this? Nobody wants to do something that's totally stupid. But it's interesting that you say you're partly obliger and partly upholder, because upholders and obligers share their ability to meet outer expectations. So in that way, they're very much alike. My question to you is, if there's something that matters to nobody else, it's just kind of a promise you've made to yourself. Do you find that harder to keep the promise to yourself than a promise to someone else? Yeah, if I bought into it like a questioner would, then I would easily do it. But if it comes to things like taxes, I will question all day long why the tax code needs to be the way it is. And then an obliger in that sense, if, for example, I will get something ready in time for an appointment with someone, but if it's not a priority in the rest of my life, if I haven't questioned and bought into it, and I'm just doing it purely for the convenience of being ready and respecting that other person, I'll do it from that obliger sense. I don't know. Maybe I'm getting it messed up. (laughs) Let's say you decided that you wanted to start meditating and it's sort of mildly inconvenient and nobody else cares if you do it. Would you find that harder to keep up with that new thing than like something like meeting an appointment or would you find those things equally easy to keep? I do equally. I definitely meditate I wouldn't say every single day as if like if I break the chain, I'm broken. So I'm not necessarily super rigid, but there are some things where I'm not super uptight about it. I think this is why I'm confused because I feel like I'm like both. I will be respectful of someone else's time or attention. But at the same time, if it's not personally important to me, I'm waiting to the last minute probably to get that done and always keeping the things that are personally important to me happening. And that's why I could be an upholder, but there are times where I question it a lot. And there are other times where I'm waiting, if it's not super important to me, to have it done for someone else. That sounds like an upholder that just has a strong sense of like what really matters. Because you're saying, well, I'll do it, but maybe I'll do it at the last minute. But you're basically doing it. Because what an obliger will often say is the expectations of others must be met but a promise to myself could always be broken. Or they'll say things like, why is it that I'm always putting other people's expectations to the forefront, but then I never can do anything for myself? That's the way an obliger sees it. We'll see as an upholder doesn't feel that way because as an upholder, what we want to do for ourselves is just as important as what we want to do for other people. Yeah, I'm definitely someone who is internally very motivated, very easily able to keep different habits. I've been creating several of them I can't wait to share. By this point of this interview going live, I probably will have shared that I've been working on a book. And so far, I've chosen not to announce it and have been working on it behind the scenes. And in a way, it was really nice not to have that external expectation. Although some people obviously can get that obliger accountability from it. I actually really was glad that I didn't use that to psych myself up, but to really be internally committed before externally committing. Well, see, that's a very upholder thing to do because an obliger would find it very hard to do anything at all without external accountability, whereas for you, that wasn't an important prop. And I got to say, you sound like an upholder because upholders are people who are like, habits are awesome. (laughs) I do love them. (laughs) Why don't you just do what I do? Because if you do what I do, you're going to find it easy. A lot of the people in this space are upholders, which makes sense because we're the people who like habits and form them easily. And, you know, an upholder would say something like discipline brings freedom. Well, other people don't feel that way. Upholders feel that way. To the point of like the five love languages, what I love about the five love languages is if you want to communicate love, you can't say it the way you want to say it. You have to say it in the way the person can hear it. And this is one of the ways I think the tendencies can be really powerful is like, yeah, it helps you understand yourself. Absolutely. 
If you're an obliger, what you need is a system of external accountability. That's the crucial piece. That's what you need. You're done. That's the answer for obligers. And for questioners, it's all about rationale and buying in and understanding. And that's really helpful. But it's also really helpful if you're trying to work with someone else. Because the fact is, if you're a doctor trying to get a patient to take blood pressure medication, that message is going to be much better received if you think about how do I talk about this in a way that it's going to be compelling to the person that I'm trying to persuade? Because a rebel is going to hear a message very differently from an obliger, from a questioner, from an upholder. Well, an upholder, if you said take the blood pressure medication, they just would. So, okay, they're gone. They're taken care of. But how do you talk to the other three in a way that they're going to hear what you're saying in a way that's going to change their habits. It's not enough for you to say what you find persuasive. You have to speak in a way that the listener becomes persuasive. So I think the tendencies is helpful, not just as a self-management tool, but it's also if you're trying to be a better parent or a better spouse or a better manager or a better coworker or a better healthcare professional or a better coach or a better trainer, because people respond to different things. I do think accountability can be a helpful tool. No, I think accountability, it can be helpful for anyone, but for an obliger, it is the crucial piece. They cannot meet an inner expectation without some form of external accountability. That is just the pattern that I've seen over and over. And I have to say, everything in the book, if I was going to say, what is the thing that for most people has been the biggest light bulb? You know, it's like the person who said to me, well, I love to read, but somehow I just never, never made time to read. And then I joined a book group where you're really expected to read the book, and now I read all the time. Or someone who said, I was trying for years to exercise, but then my neighbor was like, hey, will you walk with me in the mornings? And now I never miss a day because I can't let down my neighbor. Or a friend of mine who said, you know, I could never eat breakfast until somebody said, well, you know, if you don't eat breakfast, your kids aren't going to eat breakfast because they're going to think this is what grownups do. Grownups don't eat breakfast. If you want them to have a healthy breakfast, you need to have a healthy breakfast. And I haven't missed breakfast since. So it's just figuring out how to plug in what you need so that you can keep those habits. I love it. Okay. So one question I have, and I'm so interested to hear what you have to say. A lot of themes that pop up from time to time on the show is this idea of perfectionism. So my question to you is, because it wasn't directly addressed in the book, do you believe that perfectionism is really an upholder tendency or can you be a perfectionist in all four areas just depending on what you're focused on being perfectionist about? Well, you know, it's very interesting that you say that because I have never really spent much time thinking about perfectionism. And it's funny because as an upholder, you would think that I would be very preoccupied with perfection, and I'm not. In fact, I wonder if perfectionism is actually for a lot of people a form of procrastination, that it's really related to impulsivity and not to standards. Because the desire to be perfect is a delaying mechanism. I can't move forward with this because it's not perfect, which to me is about procrastination. So it's about work style and about habits of working. It's definitely true that upholders are very upset when they fail to meet expectations. So for instance, a friend of mine who is an editor at like a major newspaper said, and she's an upholder, she said to me, like, it really bothers me when there's a mistake in something that I edited. People are like, you just need to let it go. It happens. And she's like, it really, really bothers me. Of course, that's good for the kind of job that she has. You want somebody who's going to be really, really, really dedicated to not having mistakes in the newspaper. And so in that way, it's good for her, even though it's painful when a mistake comes in. But I don't know about perfectionism. I don't know that I would say that it's always a delaying mechanism. So how does it come up? What's the context? So a lot of the guests we've had on the show that have mentioned perfectionism will go on the other end of the spectrum. They're so busy wearing themselves out trying to do everything perfectly that they get stressed out, burnt out, and frustrated. So it's definitely where they're scrambling to keep all the balls in the air rather than not picking up any balls. 
Okay, now that pattern is the obliger pattern because the obliger pattern feels like they have to meet others' expectations. They find it very hard to say no to others' expectations. So then they overload themselves with burdens, which then they can't meet. So it's not a problem of perfectionism. It's a problem of overcommitment. Now, see, to an upholder or a questioner, they'd be like, I know you want me to read your report, but I got to write my own report and I'm behind, so I can't help you. That's not hard for an upholder or a questioner. It's certainly not hard for a rebel. But for an obliger, they find it very hard. Like this happened to me today. A journalist sent me a thing and saying, it would be really helpful if you would just write a few sentences on this subject or whatever. And I said, you know, I'm sorry, I'm swamped. I don't have time to write anything. And she said, oh, good for you. I can never say no to anything. And I was like, that's got to be a huge burden. Because if you're just like randomly meeting the expectation of some journalist that you don't know who's just handed you an assignment and told you, will you please do this for me? That I can say no to. But she was saying I would not be able to say no to that. So, of course, it's a huge burden. And, of course, if you're doing anything, you want to do it well. And the thing about obligers is they often have this very striking pattern of obliger rebellion, which is they will meet, meet, meet expectations. And then all of a sudden, seemingly arbitrarily, they will go into obliger rebellion, which is when they just put their foot down and say, I've done everything everybody wanted me to do, but this I will not do. And they kind of explode. Sometimes it's symbolic and small what they're saying that they won't do, but sometimes it can be very, very destructive pattern. So they're overtaxed, they're resentful, they're burning out. And so I think if you're an obliger or if you're around an obliger, you have to help them figure out external ways to build in the limits so they don't get to that place of burnout and resentment. Because the thing is, obligers feel like everybody's taking advantage of them, and they are correct. Because (laughs) what does everybody do when they have something that they want to do? They go straight for an obliger. Because an obliger is the one who's going to meet an external expectation before they meet their inner expectations. That's exactly the person you go to. In fact, I was talking at an event about the four tendencies, and somebody came up to me afterward and said, how do I hire for obliger? That's what I want to hire. (laughs) I only want to hire obligers. I think if people feel like they're struggling with perfectionism, what maybe they're struggling with is overcommitment. I want to do everything in my life well. Well, it's like, well, why are you doing all those things? Maybe you can't do all those things. Maybe you need to figure out what you're not going to do. And that might be hard for you. So how can you build an external accountability? So somebody was saying to me that she had a coworker who has been a longtime friend. And so anytime before she committed to something, she would say to her friend, should I do this? And she said it wasn't even that her friend told her what to do or what not to do, but that just having to kind of report to somebody, should I do this? It helped her think like, well, really, should I do this? I don't have to meet this commitment. And a lot of times her friend would be like, you crazy. Why are you doing it? Or another obliger. So he was an obliger who traveled too much. He said he found it very hard to tell his team that he wouldn't travel. And so what he did is he set up a system where once a month, his secretary would email him and his wife how many nights away from home he'd spent in the last month. So he was accountable. And it's like, if it's 13 days away in one month, That's too many days. And his secretary knew it and his wife knew it and he knew it. Then that allowed him to say no to his team because he'd be thinking, yeah, but what about my family? I have to think about them too. It's not just this team. I have to say no to somebody. Creating that accountability allowed him to pay attention to the needs of himself and his family. And so sometimes I think that perfectionism, it's not so much about being perfect as there's a lot of things that can be going on there. So I think it's worth really looking closely at the situation and trying to understand exactly what might be at play. Because if it's just sort of general perfectionism, like I want to be a great spouse and a great worker and a great friend and a great community member. It's like, well, okay, but maybe you can't do all of those things 100%. You're going to have to figure out what your priorities are. Yeah, what your values are in that moment. Yes. What's your answer to this idea of simply going for moderation instead of creating specific habits? 
Oh, well, I think moderation is a very, very dangerous concept. Can you explain why? Well, I mean, moderation as to like chocolate or moderation as to what? You just went in in the book in detail about why you think moderation is not superior to habits, but often people will respond to this idea of creating habits and say, well, I'd just rather be moderate with everything rather than have a specific habit in mind. Well, yeah, I don't think it's moderate as opposed to a habit. It's like what kind of habits around a certain kind of indulgence work for you. Definitely when people are facing a strong temptation, not a mild temptation, but a strong temptation, there are people who are abstainers and people who are, are moderators. And so abstainers are people who are kind of like all or nothing. Like I could have one thin mint or seven thin mints, but I can't have two thin mints. A friend of mine said, I can have no wine or I can have four glasses of wine. I can't have half a glass of wine. So he's an abstainer about wine. He finds it easy not to have any, but once he has it, he's going to have a lot. And then a moderator is somebody who gets kind of panicky and rebellious if they're told they can never have something. And they do better when they have a little bit or when they have it sometimes. Like moderators will often have like a bar of fine chocolate in their desk drawer. And once a day, they'll have one square of fine chocolate. Whereas an abstainer like me, I'm like the whole day would be consumed with two or three or now or later. And it's my birthday and I'm going to be so good tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would, just, I would be haunted by the chocolate bar. For me, it's all or nothing. But the way this comes into ha play with habits is that sometimes people will say like, oh, well, you should give yourself a cheat day. Or if you're too rigid it's going to be too hard for you and that it, moderation is somehow easier. But if you're an abstainer personality, abstaining is actually easier. And so many people have written to me saying like, for years and years and years, I've tried to be moderate about something. And then when I just tried giving it up altogether, it's so much easier. Like my sister gave up French fries because French fries were her kryptonite. And it's just easier to say, I just never eat French fries. But for some people, that's a strategy that doesn't work. They do better when they have a little bit. And so you really have to know yourself. And this comes up not just with food, but a lot of times it comes up with technology. You know, a guy said to me, I can't go to ESPN.com for 20 minutes. It's like, I don't go or I'm there for three hours. There is no in-between for me. And so I just can't let myself go there. So it's how you manage a strong temptation. But you can see how there'd be a lot of conflict. Like one member of a family comes home with a pint of ice cream and the other one's like, why did you buy the ice cream? You know, I'm gonna eat the whole thing. And they're like, oh, why don't you just manage yourself better? And so they're both trying to convince each other that they're doing it wrong. And there's no right way or wrong way. It's just about knowing yourself. But the thing is, moderation sounds easier. But if you are an abstainer personality, it's actually harder. I am an abstainer. I abstain from so many things you wouldn't even believe it. Because moderating is hard for me. Abstaining is easier. I love abstaining. Again, it's back to this idea of like, who are you? What works for you? What's interesting about that one, when you bring it up in the context of food, I wasn't planning on going here, but it's really interesting also just to share from my own experience. I've flipped on this from an abstainer to a moderator, depending on my motivations for the urges and what part of my psyche I'm listening to. So I talk a lot about on the show the ego versus the intuition. So that deeper place of peace versus that, you know, stereo that's going on in your head, which is just constantly telling you what you want, think and feel from a very impulsive, ego driven standpoint. When I used to for nine years control my eating with my ego or the brain that rationality, then I was constantly obsessed with the chocolate, I couldn't sleep with it in the room. And now I am completely a moderator in that after years of working on it and being so sick of that other voice driving me, to go to that intuition at first was a huge shift, but now has been really liberating. Not to say that moderating is always better for everyone, but it's interesting to think that you may not have to be abstaining or moderate forever and that those tendencies can shift. 
That's interesting. It's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I guess the thing about abstaining is it, it's faster. You know what I mean? Like you, nine years of introspection versus like, oh, it's just not worth it. But you're right. Maybe people can get there mindfully over time if they really, really struggle with it and master it and work through it. An intuitive place was an interesting place to get that allowed me that moderation and peace because ironically, when I was abstaining, but not really actually doing it because it was constantly being self-sabotage, I would constantly fail at losing the weight. And when I finally stopped forcing myself to do all these things and just listen to my intuition, the weight slowly came off. Interesting. That is so interesting. Over how many years do you think going from the place of like utter preoccupation to you feel like it's in the right kind of perspective in your mind? Like 10 years? Four years underweight, five years overweight. So roughly half and half. It got to the point where I was sick of thinking about it. And I would rather be peacefully where I was than forcing myself to try to lose. Finally, just realized that that voice that was constantly telling me what I could eat, when I could eat and how much I could eat was failing constantly. I was never peaceful, even when I was dangerously underweight. I probably felt good about it, but I was scared of gaining weight. For me, I just got sick of the whole rat race. But that was like a whole drama. And I'm not saying that that needs to be for everyone listening to this. That's what I think is a really interesting point is like, we all want a magic one size fits all solution. You know, we all want the simple answer. And the fact is, it really just depends. You're who you are. I'm who I am. Everybody's going to come to this with a different temperament, different values, different temptations, different circumstances. And you can't just think like, well, this is the right way. And I, I keep saying that with abstainer. Like for me, abstaining is so easy. It's such a relief. And it's like, it's hard for me not to be like, for everybody, this is the answer, but it's not the answer for everyone. And just like you say, you had a very different path and you're exactly where you want to be. And so it's not that like one of us is right and one of us is wrong. It's that can everyone listen to the experience of other people and think maybe this rings true for me or this strikes a chord in me. And as I think about when have I succeeded in the past, what appeals to me, what feels right, then you can start to say like, you know what, this is what feels right to me. That does not feel right. Because a lot of people really urge moderation. A lot of abstainers said to me like, oh, well, you know, I didn't know it was a thing. I didn't know abstaining was a thing. And once you said that's what you are and I'm like part of a team, then I realized this is how it works for me. But it absolutely doesn't work for everybody. I think we're a perfect example of this. Like we came to it in completely different ways. We have different outcomes. And yet we both feel like where we are is working for us. Yes. It's not like there's one right answer. It's frustrating because everybody wants it. My answer for everything is, well, it depends. They're like, should I get up early and run? I'm like, well, it depends. Are you a morning person or a night person? There's no easy answer. And so that's why I think it can be so helpful to hear about other people's experiences because some things ring true and some things you're like, man, that's not me. You know, like that's not going to work for me. And then you, you learn about yourself. Yes. And what you were saying is that as an abstainer, it brings you peace. For yes. me, as a moderator, it brings me peace. Now, yes. when I was abstaining, I was never peaceful. Yes. <laughs> I was always obsessed. See? And that's exactly right. When you try to go against your nature. And it's interesting because I have this podcast with my sister, Happier with Gretchen Rubin. And one of the things we talk about, she's very different. And she's a moderator about just about everything except for French fries. And she finally said, I have to be an abstainer for French fries. <laughs> but in general, she is much more in the moderate camp than I am. And again, it's like, okay, people are different. People come at this differently. They're going to tackle these things differently. It's just about feeling right about what you're doing and figuring out what works for you. Absolutely. So one of your favorite things is loophole spotting. So tell us about loopholes. This is my favorite chapter to work on because loopholes are so funny. We are so creative and ingenious when it comes to thinking of loopholes. 
you know, we're all grownups and we can mindfully make exceptions to our good habits. So let's say you have the habit of, okay, I'm not going to eat sugar. But then you're like, well, I'm in Paris and it's my wedding anniversary. And we're going to this amazing restaurant and I want to get their specialty of the house, their tiramisu or whatever it is. And you're like, I'm planning it in advance. I'm making a choice. This is what I want. I look back on it with pleasure. Great. Excellent. You're totally in control of what you want. You have this amazing experience. Fantastic. A loophole is when you walk into a restaurant on an ordinary day and you're like, I'm completely going to keep my great habits. I'm totally committed. You sit down and you're like, oh my gosh, it just occurred to me. You only live once. Or it just occurred to me. I've been so good. I deserve to have a break. Or it doesn't matter what I do today because I'm going to be so good tomorrow. Or, oh, the label says this is healthy. It's made with all natural ingredients. So it's completely fine for me to eat this. Or other people are going to feel uncomfortable if I don't order dessert. So I really think I owe it to them to eat dessert. So there's 10 categories of loopholes. Most of us have a favorite one or two. We're really familiar with all of them. There's a loophole for every situation. Once I started trying to figure out what they were, you know, I was constantly trying to figure out what the categories were. And I've heard people go through five or six in one breath because we're <laughs> so good at coming up with loopholes for ourselves. But the fact about a loophole is usually you come up with it in the heat of the moment and then you regret it later. It's not the wonderful anniversary dessert that you've looked forward to. It's the half a donut in the break room that you eat at three o'clock because you're really hungry and all of a sudden you're just like, oh, well, you know, uh, I'm going to be so good tomorrow. It doesn't matter what I do today. And so you eat it and then you're like, why did I do that? I had a bag of almonds in my desk. Why didn't I just eat the almonds? You know, you regret it and you feel a lack of control over yourself. You know, you had an idea of what the way you wanted to behave and you didn't follow through with it. And that's a bad feeling. We want to feel like we can count on ourselves. And so loophole spotting of the 21 strategies, this is one of the strategies. And I think a lot of times they just run through our head without us even consciously realizing that we're thinking of them. But when we can spot them, then we can kind of be like, wait a minute, that's a questionable assumption. Am I invoking a loophole? Or, you know, wait a minute, that's a false choice. False choice is my favorite. Like, I'm too busy writing to go to the gym. Really? No. Really? That's a false choice. Actually, it reminds me of I've just finished and I'm obsessed with Man's Search for Meaning. Oh my gosh, what a beautiful, amazing, haunting, towering masterpiece of human literature. Yes, yes, yes. Oh my gosh. He asks you, imagine you're living your life as a second time. And the first time you lived your life, you acted as the way you feel like acting now. Let's say this is the cake and you said the almonds, cakes versus almonds. You're pretending you're living your life a second time and you're at the same birthday party or office situation and the cake is there. You feel like eating the cake. So the first time in your life, you ate the cake <laughs> and now you're pretending that you're living the second life. What would you do given the fact that you already did it the first time? Would you make the same choice or would you choose differently? Mm, that's an excellent thought experiment. Excellent. In the second time around, would you make the same loophole or would you would you do it again? Right. And that's the thing is like, if you really stand by your choice, then you would say like, absolutely, that's the choice I wanted to make. And if it's a loophole, a lot of times you regret it. I think a lot of times the minute that we're on the other side, we recognize that it was a loophole. Of the 21 strategies, one of the strategies is called the strategy of safeguards, which is about planning for failure and like anticipating stumbling blocks. What's going to happen on vacation? What's going to happen when you get sick? What's going to happen if somebody brings in treats to the office? What's going to happen if it's really cold outside? What's going to happen when it gets dark earlier? What's going to happen if your friend doesn't show up to go to the gym with you? Like having a plan. And then also what happens if you screw up? Because a lot of times people are like, well, I screwed up. It's as if I did nothing. I screwed up a little bit, so I might as well screw up a lot. And, you know, it's like all about kind of managing failure. And I'm sure you talk about this all the time. 
A lot of people think that if they load themselves with guilt and shame, if they screw up, that that will somehow energize them to do a better job with their habits. But in fact, research shows that it's just the opposite and that it's people who show self-compassion are more able to get back in the saddle of a habit. You know, people who say things like, well, that wasn't my best day, or I learned my lesson that time, or I'll do better tomorrow, who, who show compassion to themselves, don't beat themselves up so much. They are better at re-entering a habit, going back to it and trying again instead of just abandoning it if they break the chain or if you know something goes wrong. Why are rewards damaging for habit formation? Oh, this is so interesting and a very tricky, confusing area. Rewards do a couple things that interfere with habit formation. First of all, when we give ourselves a reward for something, the message that we're sending ourselves is that this must be in some way a deprivation or a burden, because why are you rewarding yourself for it? Because you're not choosing to do it for its own sake, you're doing it for a reward. So I'm going to give up drinking for 30 days, and I'm going to reward myself with an iPad. Well, sort of what the message is to your brain is like, okay, well, we're in this for the iPad, or, oh, I'm going to go to the gym, I'm going to do this workout at the gym, because I'm going to get points from my employer that I can get a t-shirt. And that's not good, because you want a habit to be an automatic decision. Habits work when they just put a behavior on automatic pilot. You do not reward yourself for brushing your teeth or wearing your seatbelt. You don't expect a reward. These are not out of the ordinary. These are just exactly what you expect yourself to do every day. And so when you're rewarding yourself, you're saying to yourself, well, I wouldn't otherwise be doing this. And also, have I earned the reward for it? So like if my thing is, oh, I get to have a cookie if I go for a run. It's like, well, what if I went for half a run? Do I get my cookie? Or what if I really wanted to go for a run, but then my <laughs> boss called, so I couldn't go for my run, but I wanted to go for my run. Do I get my cookie? It's not going on to automatic pilot because it's always in this judging, deciding. You don't want to decide with a habit. Decide once what the behavior is and then put it on automatic pilot. And so rewards interfere with that. But the one kind of reward that can work is a reward that takes you deeper into the habit. So, for instance, if you said, I am going to make my lunch every day instead of ordering fast food, you've done that for four weeks. And you might say, I'm going to reward myself by buying a fancy set of knives. Because if you're doing a lot of cooking, a fancy set of knives is something that's really helpful and useful and good tools make work more fun. And the only way you're going to use those knives, the only way that it's going to function as a reward is if you're cooking. Or like you're like, I've been doing a lot of yoga. I need a new yoga mat, right? Because the only purpose of a yoga mat is to allow you to do more yoga, which is the very habit that you're trying to reinforce. It's a reward that only is useful in reinforcing the habit. Or like I heard about this employer who had a brilliant policy, which was if you went to the gym 75 times in one year and they kept track, that's the strategy of monitoring, which is we do better when we keep track of how much we're doing something. If you went to the gym 75 times in one year, what was your reward? The next year free. The reward for exercise was more exercise. Brilliant, right? But what if the reward had been like two days off? That has nothing to do with the habit that you're trying to enforce. You want the rewards to be something that takes you deeper and deeper into the habit not something that's outside the habit because that just becomes a distraction. And then often when the reward stops and often even before the reward stops, the behavior stops. It doesn't become a habit. People think sometimes like, I'll reward this for a while and then the habit will kick in and then it'll take over. That doesn't really happen. No, you just have to have shinier pennies at the end of the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then like, and you just, get, and, and that's not sustainable. I totally have a, a story for this. Oh, yeah. Back in the day, I'd run marathons and I would try to rationalize with myself, well, instead of spending the money on the race fees for running a half marathon, I'll spend that money on some new Ray-Ban sunglasses. And so I'll train for this marathon, this half marathon, and I'll run it. 
on my own and then buy the sunglasses for myself at the end as the reward. Well, I wasn't still running after that. I was just doing it for the sunglasses. And I don't even think I did the half marathon, honestly. I think I ended up getting them beforehand, possibly not even actually running the half in the first place. Yeah, I mean, because if you're self-rewarding, you start cutting those corners. And a funny kind of reward that's hard to see, speaking of the marathon, is that hitting a finish line is a kind of reward. And it is also very dangerous for habits because a lot of times people will be like, oh, I want to get in the habit of exercise. So I'll train for the marathon. But then they run the marathon and then they quit running or they say something like, I'm going to give up sugar for Lent. And then, they're like, oh, this is great. I quit sugar. But then when Lent's over, they go right back to sugar because whenever there's that finish line, you have that sense, well, I'm finished. With a habit, it's something you want to do indefinitely. And so I think it's much better if there is something that looks like a finish line. You always want to have a plan, like what's day 35 of a 30-day yoga challenge look like? Or what is the post-Lent eating look like? Or what are you doing two weeks after the marathon in terms of your training? Because if you hit that finish line, a lot of times people are like, oh, I'm finished. And that ends the habit. They think that they've gotten the habit, but in fact, they've just been working towards a goal. And they reachieve that goal. And then it's sort of like, okay, I did that. And it's like, no, you want to keep running forever. You want to eat healthfully forever. You want to do yoga forever. And so you have to have a plan for that. Yes. The difference between a goal and a habit is indefinitely versus an end date. Yes. Goals can be really powerful, but they're very, very dangerous when it comes to habits. I think you would love this. So this comes from Hal Elrod, and he talked about creating the best year ever. And if you want to have the best year ever, I think this is something you could easily adopt to your habits as well. You want to have the best December, the year before ever. Oh, yes. Instead of saying throwing the towel the rest of the year, screw this, let's just start over on January 1st, you gear up for January 1st. Yes. So to have the best year ever, you have the best December ever. Yes. What you could do is turn it into a blast start is what you call like a really intense period to start, which triggers this slightly easier habit going forward indefinitely. So maybe the marathon is your foray into running. And this is a huge blast start that is going to, like you said, the big thing is to have the plan of what's going to happen afterwards in mind. Yeah, is to think of it as a milestone. It's an exciting milestone, but it's just one of many milestones, right? So it's like if if you're going to have the year, you have to think about the December before and then also what's happening the next January. Because it's December 31st. It's like, well, what are you going to do tomorrow? Because tomorrow's the new year. Don't quit those good habits that you started. Fascinating. That is a great way to think of it. Can you explain how values factor into habits? It's sort of in two chapters in particular, the one on the strategy of clarity and the strategy of identity. And so the strategy of clarity is about if we know what we want, if we know what we want to expect from ourselves, if we know what behaviors we want to do, it's much easier to follow through. And you'd think like, well, of course, I know exactly what my values are, but it's surprisingly hard to know what your values are. A lot of times you have a lot of things swirling around in your head at once, and it takes some effort to really think through like, well, in this circumstance, in this behavior, what is the value that I really want to put forward? But what I found also that a lot of people have said, and I certainly feel this way myself, not only is it easier to keep a habit when you're very, very clear about your own values, it also matters less what other people think. Because one problem that comes up a lot with habits is what do you do when other people are not helpful? Because sometimes they're really encouraging and supportive, and that's wonderful. Sometimes they sort of are indifferent. They don't help, but they don't get in your way, and that's okay. And then sometimes they're actively undermining. And that might be because your habit makes their life slightly less convenient. Or maybe they feel judged because you're doing something different from the way they do it, and so they feel like you're judging them. Or maybe it's making them feel guilty because they see that you're making a positive change and they know in their hearts they should be doing that too. 
And now they feel like seeing you quit or seeing you do something differently makes them feel bad about themselves. And so they try to trip you up. And, and sometimes they do it what, being very well-meaning, saying, oh, why are you so hard on yourself? Come on, live a little. You deserve it. You know, and you're like, that's not helping me. It's well-intentioned. It's loving. I baked it especially for you. Oh, why should you get up early and work on your book? Come on, you deserve to sleep in. And you're like, but really, I want to work on my book. Many people find that the clearer they are about why they're doing what they're doing, why it's important to them, the value that it serves for them, the less significant other people's opinions are. Of course, it always matters. Of course, it always affects us because we're so affected by other people. But it seems like it puts it in a better perspective when you have that sense of clarity. And the strategy of identity is interesting because what I noticed was that a lot of times when there's a really important habit that a person is unable to change, like they'll say, I really, really want to do this and I just can't manage to pull it off. It turns out that at its core, it has to do with some kind of change in identity that the person hasn't grappled with. So whether that's like, oh, you know, I'm like this cool young rebel person who stays out late and smokes and drinks. I don't want to be the kind of person who doesn't smoke, but I do want to be that kind of person because I want to quit smoking. Well, you have to grapple with the fact that there's a change of identity or like some friends of mine who had a new baby. She said, our problem is we just stay up too late and the baby gets up early and we're both of us are completely wrecked all the time. And I was like, well, why don't you get a bit earlier? And she was told me a bunch of things, but really it came down to, she had this idea of them being this kind of like, glamorous young couple. And the idea of going to bed early to her sounded so domestic. She didn't want to be that kind of person. And I was like, well, you just have to decide what value is more important to you. This value of yourself as being the kind of person who stays up late or this value of the kind of person who gets a good night's sleep because they're incompatible. You have to think through what you really want right now because they're both values. They're both important to you, but they're coming into conflict and it's causing you difficulties. You can do whatever you want. You're an adult. But just think about what it is that you really want now in the situation. And I think once she sort of grappled with that, it was easier to say, like, we can still be cool and glamorous and go to bed at 10. She figured out a way to work that out. But it was painful. It was painful to give up this identity that had been very precious to her. Yeah, it's my class, Life with Intention Online. We focus on living your values. And I always ask people, how would they like to express their values given their current circumstances? Before she had a baby, the answer was different than after she had the baby. Yes, exactly. And you have to be able to deal with the circumstances you have, not the situations you'd ideally like to have that aren't reality in this moment. Exactly. Exactly. No, the fantasy, like where every value can be equally present. It's like, well, a lot of times they're incompatible. So you really have to think about what is it that's going to work for you. Or at least for the season of your life. Yeah, yeah. No, and absolutely. I think that's a great way to think about it. It's like right now. Somebody said to me, I'm in the rush hour of life. And I thought, that's great, you know, because like not everything can happen in the rush hour of life. But the rush hour of life doesn't last forever. And there's time to do other things at other seasons of life. And so enjoy what's happening now. And then at another time, you can do something different. Absolutely. It's not about locking into a certain box, but just sort of understanding yourself better so you can make choices that are better for you at certain times. Yeah, I mean, it it is interesting how... Sometimes it can be painful to let go of identities, even when they're not working for us anymore. I mean, here's a dumb, dumb, dumb example, which I talk about in the book, which is 
I kind of had this idea of myself as I'm like a, a woman who doesn't own a purse. I used my backpack and I was like, I'm a grown up lady and I don't have a purse. People are always like, do you want a matching bag? I'm like, oh, <laughs> I am so far from that. I can't even tell you. But it came to the point where I'm like, I actually need a purse because there are certain situations where it would be more convenient for me to have a purse. So it's actually inconveniencing myself and causing myself annoyance because I had so locked into this identity. And I was like, give up the identity, which by the way, is like, who cares? Nobody cares. I didn't even really care. It just had sort of occurred to me. I'm like, get a purse. And then when you need a purse, you have a purse to use. And it was just, it was a lot easier. But sometimes it's something much deeper. You know, it's your identity is, you know, as a young person, or like my friend, Maria, who I talk about in the book, wanted to drink less. She didn't want to give up drinking, but she wanted to drink less. And she would say things like, but I'm Italian. I love good food and wine. Like, I'm the one who says, let's have another round. Like, she had this idea of herself, which was really getting in the way of drinking less. And so she really had to think through, well, what did she really want from herself? And then she realized she could still be herself, an Italian who loves good food and wine, who loves celebrations and hanging out with friends and everything, and still drink less. And so she was able to do that. But she really had to think about it. I have a feeling that eventually my dad's going to need hearing aids because he was someone who listened to a lot of loud music in his time. And I feel like that identity Uh, shift may or may not be easy to get over in order to get those when the time comes that he needs them. Yeah, you know, that's a perfect, perfect example, because actually you're making your life more difficult and more limited by not allowing that shift in identity. That's an excellent, excellent example. Or reading glasses. Yes. So here's a question. What habit should we focus on first? Well, it depends because there is no magic one-size-fits-all solution, but there is the strategy of foundation. That's a really good place to start is with the areas and the foundation because they go directly to self-mastery. And self-mastery is what you need if you're going to stick to your good habits. So if you're trying to figure out where to start, not letting yourself get too hungry, drinking lowers inhibitions, drinking alcohol. So you want to watch out for that. A little bit of exercise really boosts your sense of self-mastery. It does not have to be an hour spin class. It's like just moving around, going for a walk. Sleep. If you're sleep deprived, everything is harder. It hurts your mood, your memory, your immune function, your decision making. Everything's harder when you're exhausted. And weirdly, this was more of a surprise to me, uncluttering. For a lot of people, outer order contributes to inner calm and inner self-command. And over and over, people will tell me that, you know, I cleaned off my desk and now I feel like I can go running in the mornings. Or, you know, a friend of mine said, oh, I I cleaned out my fridge and now I know I can switch careers. And I knew exactly how that felt. Um, There's something about outer order that just makes people feel more in command of themselves in a way that many people find enormously energizing creativity sparking and helping them move forward in a lot of different unrelated habits. Okay, so now I'd like to move on to two questions I have. So here's the first, and this is a little bit long, so I'm going to try to get this out. Deidre asks, Gretchen's solution seems to be that obligers should just accept their fate and create exterior expectations for all of their personal expectations. She hates this. She says, yes, it works, as having a dog got me out walking every morning and the promises to myself never did. But I so dislike having to rely on others for my personal goals. And I do feel like this is a character flaw, that obligers are really upholders, but they lack respect. Have you ever heard of someone who used to be an obliger that became an upholder? From my perspective, I'll just say what I think, which is I think the easiest, most straightforward thing is to accept yourself and to work within the limitations of your nature. And when you look at people of all the tendencies, those are the people who are the happiest, healthiest, and most productive. They're the ones that 
take advantage of the advantages of their tendency and then figure out ways to counterbalance the limitations. And to my mind, you could spend a lot of time and effort trying to change your nature. I don't think that that is likely to be successful. I think that these are hardwired, ubiquitous aspects of personality. I don't think that you would change. And why bother? It's so easy to plug in external accountability and then you can do anything you want. Don't see it as dependence. Just say like, this is what I need. I mean, a lot of people can't work without a deadline. You know, a lot of people can't go exercising without a dog or a a trainer. I mean, this is the biggest tendency. Many people are like this. There's no reason to try to grow out of it. I think to just accept yourself. Obligers are the rock of the world. Instead of fighting it or also feeling bad about it, there's nothing to feel bad about. It's just, it just, it is what it is. I mean, it has limitations. As an upholder, I'll tell you, being an upholder has limitations that I have to work on to offset. So I would say, don't try to change your nature, change your circumstances. And that is just faster and easier, and it will get you exactly where you want to go in a fraction of the time and with a fraction of the turmoil. A lot of times, obligers say something like, well, why is my self-esteem so low? And that's why I can't do these things. My thing is like, well, if your self-esteem is low, it's because you want to ask these things of yourself and you're not doing it successfully. If you did it, your self-esteem would rise because you're like, man, I've been going for a run practically every day for six months. I mean, you're going to feel good about that. But if what you need to do is to have external accountability in order to do that, that's fine. Yeah. So get the coach and feel good about the fact that now you're running. There's a million things. I've got a starter kit on my site for people who want to start groups of people who are going to hold each other accountable. That works really, really well, like AA or Weight Watchers. You don't even have to be working on the same habit. It's just the idea that you're working on something together and people are holding you accountable. It's very easy to plug that in. It's a very simple solution. So I would say like, Give yourself what you need and then you can do anything you want. That just seems faster and easier and more straightforward to me. The self-respect comes from actually doing the action. What motivates you to get there or helps you get there is indifferent. Who cares what gets you there as long as you're doing it? That's where the respect comes from. Yeah, whatever it takes. It's not easy to feel bad about that. And Megan asked, in Happier at Home, you talk about how you and Elizabeth are writing a young adult novel. How's it going? Well, we had to abandon it because Elizabeth's television career has been taking off so much. We put it on the back burner, but I think that one day we'll go back to it. Again, back to the season of life. The season of life that would allow us to work on that project is not now. But the great thing about doing something with your sister is like right now we're doing this podcast together and that's amazing. And we're doing all this collaboration. And so it's sort of like our collaborative energy is there. And then at another point, we'll do maybe when we aren't doing so much intense writing on our own spheres, we'll do that together. But I'm glad to hear that someone's interested in it because we had so much fun working on it while we were. That's awesome. So what doubts or internal resistance are you facing in your life? I am trying to figure out what I'm going to write about next. I want to do something little uh, or not something little, but something very specific about the four tendencies. And so that's my next project that's coming up, but that's not my next huge project. Whenever I have an idea for a project, it hits me like a lightning bolt. Like literally, I can remember exactly where I was, what time it was when I got the idea. A lot of times it'll hit me in like a word or a phrase. And so I'm just waiting for that to strike. And that's making me feel a little unmoored as a writer since I don't have my next giant project in front of me. Yeah. When you feel that, what do you tell yourself? Just it's happened before. It'll happen again. Just do a lot of reading and I actually had a dream where I was telling my UK publicist and publisher that I'd had an idea. And I was in the dream. I was really excited. I was like, it's going to be about the genetic roots of personality. And I woke up and I was like, I don't really want to write that book, but I'm glad to know that my subconscious is working on it. So (laughs) that was very reassuring. So what would you tell someone who was just starting out on this journey? You know, uh, the thing that I figured out when I was writing the happiness project, and it just is the more I go deeper and deeper into these issues, the more true I feel like it is. 
is the most important thing for me to live a happy, healthy, and productive life is to be Gretchen. And of course, everybody has to substitute his or her own name. To know yourself is so hard. And yet, the only way we can have a happy life is on the foundation of our own nature, our own values, our own interests, our own temperament. And to know ourselves and to build a life that reflects what's true about us really is the way to have the the life that we want. And so I would just say to myself, be Gretchen. I love that. Thank you, Gretchen, so much for coming on the show and sharing your wisdom with us. And I hope that this is a springboard for those that are listening to find out your tendencies and help use these strategies that you share to start adding values-based habits in their lives. Excellent. Thanks so much. And there you have it. Thank you, Gretchen, so much for coming on the show. And thank you for listening. If you'd like to send Gretchen a message, you can go over to Twitter at Gretchen Rubin, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Jess C is in Chartreuse Lively. And for show notes and resources from today's episode, those are over at JessLively.com slash Gretchen Rubin. Before I share who's coming up for book club month next week, we're going to be doing a quick mini interview with Christy Knutson about Squarespace.com. Christy, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks so much for having me. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your business? Sure. So my name is Christy Knutson, and I live in Raleigh, North Carolina with my husband and my two young children, and I am a marketing consultant and new business coach. What kind of coaching do you do? So I primarily focus on people who are starting new businesses. I really like to focus on helping people develop their vision and their strategy and their brand. And what about your website? It's really beautiful. I have to say this is one of the best designed business coaching websites I've ever seen. How did it get started and how did you get to this place that it's at now? Sure. Well, thanks so much coming from you. That that really means a lot. But yeah, so I started the site. Pretty much it's just an information spot for anyone interested in new business coaching just to get to know me a little bit and to learn a little bit more about my strategy. And you've used a bunch of different sites in the past, other different platforms, correct? Absolutely. Yeah. So I've been in the marketing field for about 10 years and through former employers and also through my current clients, I've designed and developed sites on different platforms. And I've really found that Squarespace is so much easier. Like I cannot emphasize how much easier Squarespace is than any of the other platforms I've used. They just take the technical piece and make it as easy as possible. So you can really spend that time focusing on your content and focusing on your brand and your image rather than worrying about the mundane details of the coding. What made you make the switch from wherever you were before to Squarespace specifically? So I just felt like I was wasting a lot of my time and I am very obsessed with time management and being efficient. I felt like I was wasting a lot of time with really small problems that had to be addressed, but I couldn't figure them out. And I was also spending a lot of money hiring outside coding help. And so I was really discouraged by all that. And when I decided to start the new site for my business coaching, I knew that I wanted something that I could control myself, but also something that wasn't going to take a lot of time. And I learned about Squarespace actually on another podcast advertising and kind of knew I had to check it out. And what do you love about Squarespace the most? Well, of course, selfishly speaking, I love how easy it is. And again, I love that it's just taking so much of the frustration out of it for me. But also, I love it for my clients because before I started using Squarespace, I really was struggling to recommend different design platforms to my clients who were starting new websites because I knew they were already stressed enough with starting a new business and they had to have a website 
but none of the other platforms could I recommend and really believe that they would be able to set up a beautiful website quickly. But then once I used Squarespace for myself, I was so excited because I finally had a solid recommendation. It's just one other thing I could do to kind of make their lives easier. So I just really love it. That's amazing. And for anyone who is super excited to give this a shot as well, you can go over to squarespace.com lively to get a free 14 day trial and get started with it. Really start to use it in your own life and see if it works for you. And then use the code lively at checkout to get 10% off your service. So it's totally there for you to give it a shot. And here's a way to save some money. Christy, where can people find you and your awesome website? It's christyleeknutson.com and Knutson is spelled K-N-U-T-S-O-N. Thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing with us today. Thanks so much for having me, Jess. And now for a sneak peek. Next week's author who's coming on for book club month is Tara Bliss of tarabliss.com.au. As you may remember in season one, I interviewed Rachel McDonald and Rachel McDonald interviewed me. Rachel co-authored the book Spirited and the Spirited Companion with her best friend, Tara Bliss, who is coming up next week on the show. So if you remember Rachel and you found that she was a really great person that you wanted to learn more about, Tara is her bestie. She is an amazing woman in her own right. And we'll be discussing her new self-published book, Hi, which is based on her online program and personal story, A Party Girl's Guide to Peace. Until then, may something wonderful happen to you today. 